Hello, and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari, and this is Great Big History Podcast. In this episode of our History 101 lecture series, we do medieval and Renaissance Europe. Women, culture, education, marriage, art. With some naked people. But not pictures of naked people. But the Renaissance art has lots of naked people. But we'll get there. So we start with education in the Middle Ages. In Western Europe, it's rural, agricultural, religious, and local. The large institutions had broken down. The Roman Empire had collapsed. They had been overrun by Germanic tribes. And the local, the town, the village, became the center of the world for people. The world is big. It is scary. And you are small. And so superstition and tradition replaced science and education and knowledge. So this is why so much of like um, fantasy, like Dungeons and Dragons, takes place in this world, this post-apocalyptic world. Because the Dark Ages and the early Middle Ages is a post-apocalyptic world. The Roman Empire had broken down. The institutions had broken down. Long-distance trade had broken down. And everything was small. And it was scary. And so superstition and tradition. People, literacy declines. Health declines. Population declines. Especially with the uh, plagues that come through in the 6th century and then especially the Black Bubonic Plague. So, the world is a big, scary place full of scary things. The woods are scary. Read your grim fairy tales. The woods are full of scary things. So, education became practical. What did you need? So, it's counting. It's farming. It's herding. Few people could read. There are very few intellectuals, like higher level, like you get reading and then you get your higher level philosophical or analytical, your blooms, your top of the blooms taxonomy pyramid. There's very few of those, which means education was generally accepted knowledge. And we see this in Game of Thrones, where the women are talking to, to, um, Daenerys, thank you. And they say something, and Daenerys is like, really? And they're like, it is known. It is known. It is known. It is known. It's everyone agrees. It's the stuff everyone agrees at. Everyone knows a witch can turn you into a duck. It is known. So you don't, you don't have the books. You don't have the intellectuals. You don't have the smart people to go to. So education is practical, and it's what everyone agrees the knowledge is. So the stars spin around the earth. It is known. Why? Because if you sit out and you watch the stars at night, they move. They spin around you. You're not spinning. You don't feel yourself spinning. You're not dizzy. The stars are spinning around you, obviously. You can see it. So it's generally accepted knowledge. It is known. So what about pre-Renaissance women, rural women, Western women? Well, since they are not as physically as strong as men, they are seen as inferior. This is typical farming, farming stuff. So they're seen as inferior, not just economically, because they can't farm as well as men, but then that becomes morally and spiritually weaker. So... Women get into trouble. Boys, boys, you could get... And let's be honest. I, I come at least from a generation where we said, you know, um, girls are made from sugar and spice and everything nice. And boys are made from lizard tails. I don't know. I don't even remember. But it was girls are made from sugar and spice and everything nice. And it was... You have to protect your daughters. You have to protect your girls. Boys, send them out. 
You want to run around with knives? Good luck. Don't die. Be home by six. There's, there was the idea from the boomers and from previous generations. You could watch the movies and see how they treat boys versus girls. You could read your 19th century books. Your Little Women, for example. Your Sharps. Uh, Napoleonic War books. And see how boys are treated differently than girls. Girls are morally and spiritually weaker. It is girls who are tempted. It is girls who are seduced. Men seduce. Women are seduced. They are seduced. It happens to them all. Right? This goes back to the traditional treating women as children. Right? But now you have the the Christian component to it. You now have a religious component. Right? So you have St. Paul saying this. We'll, we'll say this later with the education. But you have St. Paul flat out saying uh, men are men and women are need to be protected. So what about marriage? Marriage is in their teens to a boy around their age. It's usually a second cousin. See Pride and Prejudice. It might be a family friend, especially if they're neighbors and their lands can be linked together. But you keep it in the family. Not directly, not first cousins usually. That's, that's even for the Middle Ages, considered kind of too close. But a cousin's cousin, they're, per, they're, they're both far enough away. So my cousin's cousin, right? That's the, the Puerto Rican part of my family. So on one side, we have the Italians, and then the, then the other side, the Italians married to Puerto Ricans, very traditional New York. And so the, my cousin's cousin are Puerto Ricans. My mother, my parents, but my mother knows those adults, right? They're her cousins, right? She's known the children since they were born. We see them at the occasional funeral and, the, and when we were kids, the occasional birthday, you know, the big graduation for, for you know, back in the day, you only had a few important graduations. Um, and that would be the person that when me and when I was 16 or 17 and ready to, to be given a plot of land, you know, and there was a 14, 15-year-old daughter, they'd be like, well, we should put them together. Why? We know who they are. We know the parents. They're trustworthy. We know the boy isn't going to run off or treat the girl badly. We're related, right? Like, think about how weird it is that you marry your daughter off to a complete stranger you don't know. And then you link up with a family you don't know. You might not have even met your kids' in-laws before the engagement. Like, oh, hello, our daughter's been dating your son for a while and we've never met. Oh, so, uh, you, you, you like, uh, car park decorating, eh? Interesting. It's weird. Like, you may go, well, marrying your second cousin's weird. No, it's actually not. Because it's far safer. Pride and Prejudice is the, 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 the family. It's in the second chapter, right? If you ever read Pride and Prejudice and or any of the Jane Austen books, right? Bridgerton is kind of the same. You're supposed to marry someone close to you. Someone you're trustworthy. Someone your parents know. So the idea is the, the parson... The minister, who's the cousin, the second cousin, right, comes to marry one of the daughters. There's the five daughters, 
All right. The eldest is unavailable because Mr. Bingsley is uh, interested in her, and they're trying to, like, marry her off to a rich dude. But the parson has a good job, a stable job, a good income, and and he promises to keep the family in the house, in the mansion. He's like, I don't really need it. As a parson, as a minister, I've got the the vicarage, as a vicar, I should say. As a vicar, I've got the vicarage, so I can live there. You can stay in the manor house. I don't need it. I don't have to. In- I'll inherit it. I'll take the money. But you could stay here. And to a wife, a woman, a grown woman, and four daughters, five daughters, one, two, five daughters, that's a huge incentive. Now, I will make the argument that the vicar cousin goes for Lizzie. He's like, oh, Lizzie will be a great wife. No, she will be a terrible wife for you. She likes to go on long walks. She likes to read. She likes to argue. She No. From the very beginning, the mom has to step in there and be like, he, no, he, look, no, you two will not get along. But Mary, the third eldest daughter, because the other two are too young, they're silly. And, but Mary, who's all right, I'll give you, needs a little pruning up. But she, she will be like, that's what moms are supposed to do is make these alliances, make these arrangements. Lizzie's mom completely fails with the vicar. And what happens? The best friend comes swooping in. The family friend. And is like, well, I'm going to marry him. And they're married in like three days. Like, she swoops right in. Mary never had a chance. But that's who was supposed to be married to the vicar, is Mary. The plain, soft-spoken, but serious woman. She would have made a good wife to the vicar. So think about you you know who who in the Middle Ages you'd be married to. You would be married either to a second cousin about your same age who your parents get along with or a close the child of a close family friend. Who if you're a boy has less money than you. But if you're a girl, has an equal amount or more money than you. Because people want their daughters to marry up. So they're going to, and since female sexuality is a desirable commodity, and we are going to talk about this in the Renaissance, you can do better. You can marry up. Women can marry up. Look at Bridgerton, right? Go watch Netflix's Bridgerton and close your eyes during the naughty scenes. But she marries a duke. I know, spoiler alert, but she marries the Duke. She is not a duchess, and she marries a Duke. Right? But she could not marry down. She could not marry a captain in the army. No, 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 no. No matter how desirable that guy is, she couldn't marry down. She marries up. So you know, so I know, like my my parents had friends who had daughters my age but the parents you know my father was a high school teacher and college adjunct and my friends my my parents friends were bankers and so they thought they would marry their daughter off to someone of a higher economic status that's the way that would work no shame there So, but you could you could guess, and I, I have a list of probably three, maybe four people, and go, this is kind of the order. And I'd have a say in it, and the girl would have a say in it. But your families would want to keep the two families linked. Women associated with other women. This is part two. So what is a woman's life then? Well, women associated with other women. Few owned businesses. They had little practical education, like in the math or in the law. 
So what they kept was tight family associations of their sister cousins in small farm towns. Look at Little Women. Look at Pride and Prejudice. Look at Emma. These connections of women, both familial, close sisters, right? Jane and Lizzie in Pride and Prejudice. You stay close. But also cousins as well. You're, that's Emma. Your extended contacts. Women associate with other women. Number three, what about education? Well, you get Bible hymns and Bible stories, not reading the, the Bible. The Bible is in Latin. The Bible is kept away from ordinary people. It's way too expensive to buy anyway. You'd have to be, it'd have to be hand copied. So only the richest people have a copy. But women had to know how to be a good Christian, and so you get the Bible hymns, you get the Bible stories, and there's St. Paul, the teachings of St. Paul in the, in the letters, which basically declares man is head of the house. Men are in charge. Women are to be taken care of. Everyone has a role. You are to cherish your wife, though. St. Paul's very clear on this. Men, cherish your wives as Jesus cherished the church. That's a lot. That's, that's, I mean, Jesus loves the church. And the church means the people. The church is not a physical place when St. Paul talks about the church. He talks about it as the people. The, uh, in Islam, you'd say the ummah, the, the congregation, the everyone. Well, since Jesus' love is inf infinite, because Jesus is Jehovah, and Jesus loves the church, you are supposed to love your wife. Done. Moving on. But, it also says, women, wives, obey your husbands. As the church obeys Jesus. Though that's probably not a direct quote, but it's the idea that you're supposed to obey. You're supposed to do what your husband says. He's in charge. Women are seen as fallen, as weaker than men. It's not quite Aristotle's women are... are a misshapen man, that women are just men that never became men. Now, we know that we're actually the opposite, right? Biologically, we're all women, and just we're women who became men. Us men start when we're an embryo as female. All humans are female. So the Middle Ages is the opposite. Women are fallen. They are weaker than men. It's the Eve story. Things were great, and then a woman was seduced, and then she convinced her man to do something stupid, and boom, here we are. So women are constantly reminded that the men are in charge and that they're weaker, that they need to be protected. Now, rich girls could find a convent. Rich girls could enter into a convent. It's also a place for lesbian girls to go. And by lesbian, we don't so much mean homosexual as much as the tom girl, the, the girl who doesn't want to be with a man, who doesn't want to be dominated by a man. And if that means, you know, homosocial or homosexual groups, that's fine. That's what the convent provided. And the convent provides independence and education. And we just kind of discussed this already when we discussed Islamic women. There are no men in a convent, which means all the jobs are for women. Like the patriarchy, this is the one place where you can get away from men. This is the one place, the convent. The problem is, how do you get into one? And so, for rich girls... You get independence. You don't have to marry a man. You can have this world that is a female world. And you get an education. Why? Well, because women need to now read the Bible. Because they're now a nun. They're now in a convent. They have to be able to understand and read the Bible. So they get an education. Now, Jewish women are different. They're still subservient, but they are better educated. 
because the Torah needs to be read. So they're better educated to understand the Torah. Jewish women are going to be more urban. It was harder for Jews in Western Europe to own land. So they congregate more in cities. This goes back to the Roman era. So they're more likely to run businesses, especially while their husbands are away. It is, in fact, um, argued that long-distance trade in, in Western Europe kind of begins because of Jewish merchants needing to connect to other Jewish merchants in other places, one, to be a merchant, to sell anything, and two, to find marriage partners for their sons and daughters. Because what happens very quickly is a small Jewish community in a Jewish quarter or Jewish ghetto, you quickly run out of people to marry. You're quickly marrying each other. So you need to, everyone knows, you need to expand that. And there's just not that many people around. So you have to go to another town, a farther village. And so while you're doing that, if you're a merchant, you bring goods with you. And who do you want to hook your son up with? If possible, the daughter of another merchant in town. And then your marriage becomes a business arrangement as well because it becomes a business alliance. I'll sell you my goods. I'll buy your goods. I'll ship them back. And when I come, my son and your daughter will come back and see you. And when we leave, you, you know, it'll be a nice visit. And so, but while you're away for that two, three, six months, someone's got to run that business. And we've talked about this with the Italian women, with the Roman women. Jewish women will take on those roles, especially in Italy um, and later in the German cities, that they will run the businesses while their husband's away. It was, a, it was natural to run into that because of the long Roman female tradition. Jewish women for ha had tighter social, intellectual, and economic networks. And the reason why was there were simply less Jews around. So you had to have tighter networks. You had to build these infrastructure because otherwise you were a minority in a minority surrounded by this Christian, Roman, Italian, Visigothic majority. You know, you, it's easy to be subsumed. So you needed to create these tighter social, intellectual, and economic networks that could, that didn't fray so easily, that could be passed down generation to generation. All right, so what about the education in the Middle Ages? We have virtually none. We have virtually none, except for the Catholic Church. Priests could read the Bible, so they could read. They had to read the Bible, so they could read. And so priests very quickly become the local smart guy. As education dies out, as literacy dies out, the priest becomes the local smart guy. You have a problem, you go to the priest. That's great, but... Here's the problem. Not all answers are in the Bible. I know. You're like, wait a minute. Everything's in the Bible. Yeah. There are problems that you need some Greek philosophy for. And that's why Greek philosophy is so important in explaining, and it's important in explaining parts of the Bible. Like, you want to explain heaven, you kind of need your Plato. So, to, so what the church does is maintain Aristotle... Plato, and the philosophical basis for its orthodoxy. Augustine, Origen. Remember, the early Roman writers, who you need to use, right, are all using Aristotle and Plato and the other Greek and Roman pagan philosophers. So you need to maintain their books. You need to understand their work in order to understand Augustine. When Augustine's like, well, you know how Plato has a perfect form, you have to know what Plato means by the perfect form, which means you need Plato. Now, Origen, who's one of the early philosophers of Christianity, I mean, early, like, when is, when is Origen? 100, 150 AD? He's early, right? So you have to maintain the classical work in order to use the stuff that's built upon it, the Christian stuff built upon it, that you need to use to explain this stuff to the local people now. Now, does that mean every 
priest is educated in Aristotle and Plato. No, most aren't. Your only higher level people are. And many times, not even them. It depends on that person. They have access to the material, but like Aristotle says, you have access to it, doesn't mean you're using it. But the local Catholic priest in a small town in northern England probably doesn't own any Aristotle or Plato. And may not even really know the Bible all that well. Remember, all these things are relative. They're educated, but they're not. Some are very good. Some are very professional. Some aren't. It's a good, hey, it's a good job if you can get it to be a priest. So a lot of people go into it, especially sons, second sons, third sons of richer dudes, go into this just to have something to do. They're not really into it. And so they serve as a principal connection to kings and the people. They serve as this intermediary. The king sends them the messages. They preach the message at and Sunday church, right? And what they give is loyalty for privileges. What the Catholic Church gets is protection. The kings will protect and support the Catholic Church, and what they get is MSNBC slash Fox News. They get a broadcast, a way of getting their message from their capital to the people. Because everyone's going to go to church and every priest is a Catholic priest. So it's very easy to get your message out. That there's a war, that there's, oh, the plague, this is what we're doing to solve the plague. Oh, these are the days you're going to have off and holidays. This is what the king is doing to help you. That kind of stuff. In the Renaissance, everything is going to change. In urban societies, especially in Italy, but then later in the Netherlands, and then the cities in, and then the capital cities, like in Paris and in London. The Renaissance is a massive change in how people think about the world. First, it is, means Renaissance is the rebirth of Greek and Roman knowledge in Europe. Why? Why do suddenly people start going, I want to read Aristotle, I want to read Plato, I've got to know Socrates. I've got to read the plays of Aeschylus and Euripides. Why? Why? Why, why, why? That's what the weird Orthodox Byzantines are doing. And they call themselves Roman. Like, well, whatever, dude, you're in Asia Minor. You're a thousand miles away from Rome. What's the big deal? Well, the Black Death is the big deal. The bubonic plague comes through following the Mongol armies. The Mongols bring it along the Silk Road. The Mongols attack um, Italian trading cities in the Black Sea. Fleeing the Mongols, the Genovese and Venetians flee the Black Sea. They bring the disease with them. They land in the ports, the Italian ports. The people who have survived on these plague ships flee into the city, and by fleeing into the city, they spread the disease. And it gets out. The Black Death will kill somewhere between 25 and 30% of the European population. It kills, if you got sick, you, you almost certainly died, especially in the earliest days. It becomes less virulent along the way, but in the earliest days, it just charges through. It devastates urban society. And the problem is, is the church can't explain mass death. Why? People go to the church and go, why, why, why? And their answer is, well, God is mad at us. And they're like, okay, how do you know? And like, well, the Bible says that. Every time there's a plague, God is mad at people. Okay, what is he mad about? And they go, I don't uh, know. Um, You're definitely doing something wrong. It's kind of like a Job thing. I don't know what you're doing wrong, but you're doing something wrong. And people are like, yeah, but my grandma, who has never done anything wrong, is sick. My three-year-old child, who definitely hasn't done anything wrong, is sick. In fact, the previous vicar died after he took care of sick people. And he was a good person. The previous priest 
So why are these good people dying? The church couldn't explain it. So if the church can't explain it, you need to look for other answers. And so there's only two places you can look for other answers. You can either invent new knowledge, i.e. science, or you can go and look at knowledge you've already got around, hanging around, and see if you could find something new in it. That's the classical stuff. That's the Greek and the Romans. The Greeks and the Romans had plagues, so go look at their stuff. It's far easier to read something that's already been written than to go and discover new information. The third thing is kings. Powerful kings are creating larger states, Spain and France, Portugal. There's a Holy Roman Emperor creating something in Germany. It's a question of what it will be. Will it be one solid new country or will it be this broken up division of smaller countries? But something's going on in Germany. And these powerful kings need smart people to help run their show. And they don't want priests. Why? Because who are priests loyal to? They're loyal to the Pope. Do kings and popes get into fights? All the time. All the time. The Pope thinks he's the head of Europe. That he's the new emperor. And the kings are like, yeah, no. I'm king. I'm king of my domain. I let your priests in. And so you get all these fights. So what kings need is people who are not priests to be their bureaucrats. Well, here's the problem. If you put someone into university for four years and all they learn is the Bible, what pops out? What graduates? A priest. That's who will pop out. So you need new information. That's the Greeks and the Romans. Sure, will you learn some, some Bible stuff? Yeah, of course. Because it's a major source of knowledge. But if you want people to not be priests, they can't just learn the Bible. They have to learn more stuff. So boom, there is a political incentive in supporting Greek and Roman knowledge. So we've got a cultural incentive and now a political incentive. This will spur the invention of universities. A university is a place, one place where subject scholars gather and people go to them rather than the opposite. Usually rich people hire tutors and bring the tutors, right? Philip II hired Aristotle, brought Aristotle to Macedon, and then Aristotle lived in Macedon and gave classes to Macedonian nobility. This is different. You're going to go to Paris. You're going to go to Cambridge. You're going to go to Oxford. You're going to go to Porto. You're going to go to the place where the scholars are. Because they're going to put the scholars all in one thing. And that's what Canon County College is. We have... In all my own department, we have a philosopher, historian, and political scientist. Down the hall are the sociologists. Downstairs is the literature and the psycho psychology specialists. Right? Across campus are all the sciences, and they're all together. The, the geology, the biology, the physics, and the chemistry. We've got photronics, the science of light. We've got engineering and math in another section of the campus. We've got practical math. We've got theoretical math. We've got applied math, engineering. Then in another place, we have medicine. We have nursing. We have dental. We have optical. We have bodily sciences, how to fix the body. That's in all of a one 300-acre campus. That's what universities do. And so you create a community of learners. And this brings about the rise of the urban university city. Because you're going to have, one, professors 
who have to live there. Two, you're going to bring in hundreds of students, if not thousands of students. You're going to bring in hundreds of students, all of whom are rich dudes, right? They're all going to be the sons of rich dudes because they're going to want to get a job with the king later on. And so what you get is then an entire economic infrastructure to sell stuff. So every university town, university towns are richer than the cities around them. I went to a school, I went to a town, I went to a school in rural New York. And it was a town of a thousand or 1500 people. But the school had 5000 people. So what the town have? It had 10 bars it had three um, tanning um, businesses. It had even in the bars, you had a professor's bar that was all wood and served high-end liquors, liquors you couldn't get at the other bars that were expensive. You know, Japanese whiskey, that type of thing. And this is back in the day when nobody had Japanese whiskey. Well, we did. Why? Because we had scholars. who We had some Japanese scholars. We had people who were scholars of Japan, and they were like, well, I want to I have some Japanese whiskey. And there's a bar that says, I will cater to that. I will sell you a $6 shot. No problem. Here it is. Tell me what to get. I will get it. And so then you had the bars for the students and the different kinds of students, right? But then you had the tanning salons. You had the um, uh, sandwich shops. We had three pizza places, right? What happens in the summer? Half the town closes. Open in September. They just put on a sign, open in September. Half the town just closed. If you've ever been on a cruise to, like, Alaska, that's what happens to, like, Ketchikan. Like, the town, the town exists. There is a town. But the main street just closes when, the, when all the cruise people leave. The, they open up, and they have their Tanzanite, and they're all their stuff, and they're selling all this stuff, and then the cruise people leave, boom, the town shuts down. That's what we get in an urban university city. So you're going to get bars, you're going to get drinking, you're going to get gambling, you're going to get prostitution. Women who have, poor women are, if they can, going to go to this, these university towns because young men have money, want to have nookie. So you get prostitutes, strippers. You'll get bookstores. You'll get um, decorative places, right? People have a dorm room, they want to put stuff up in it. They want to make it their own, right? They're going to live away from home for a year or two years, so they're going to make it their own. So you get decorative. Um, the first thing, whenever I went to college, the first thing, the first weekend was a massive um, poster sale. All of these, all, basically like Etsy, exploded in the college union with all of these guys, all of these women and men selling on their booths, and they were selling posters and paintings and little things and knickknacks. So that you would make your room, well, your half of a room, yours. So you get an entire ec economics growing up around a university. And that is incredibly important because you have to remember, the professors are pretty well paid. They're, they're always badly paid compared to how much it costs to be a professor. But they have security. And the students are rich. And so an economic system will cater to that. Second, Greeks and Romans were successful. And so the idea was learn from them. The Greeks conquered the world. The Romans conquered the world. They have something to teach. And so you look at philosophy, Plato and Marcus Aurelius, talking about the proper action, about how one should live. You, get, you, have, rule, you have the classic classes on politics. Thucydides, the Peloponnesian War. Polybius, the Carthaginian Wars. Everybody in university would learn Latin so you, that you could read Caesar's Gallic Wars. Aristotle is your science. Put quotation marks around science, but Aristotle is less philosophy and more applied philosophy. Go out and do things. Go out and see things. Go out and experience them. And this is how you do it. Oh, and this is how you organize it. Because that's a major part. Now that you found a four-leaf clover, 
What do you do with it? Well, you organize it. What's its color? How long is its stem? How long you examine the parts? That's Aristotle. So you get your science, your philosophy, your politics, your science. What about the Bible? What about religious truth? What about the revelation of God? Well, that's St. Thomas. St. Thomas comes along in his book, the Summa Theologica, the sum of all knowledge. Theology was the study of the Bible. It's the study of God. And since God is knowledge, the Summa Theologica is essentially the sum of a book called the sum of all things. He makes the argument that all knowledge comes from God. And what he does is combine Christian revelation, like you wake up and go, boom, God wants you to know something, with classical Greek, Roman science and philosophy. He is making the argument that was made from the beginning of, of this, that science is not at war with religion. And you will see this all the time today. People who don't like Darwin are going to say, oh, there's no room for God. Science is killing God. No one believes in God anymore. It's just it's science. St. Thomas Aquinas is saying, no, 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 no. no. You're missing the point. All knowledge comes from God, so it doesn't matter how you get it. Just because Plato has the perfect form in the ether doesn't mean that's not God in heaven. They're not at war with each other. They're complementary to each other because they all lead you to God. And so St. Thomas Aquinas, who is a smart man, is bringing these two traditions and saying they work together. They are not in conflict. All knowledge. So he's giving permission. He gives the permission structure for the church to allow all of this classical learning. To happen that it's not going to wipe out one their power or two their it's not going to replace church learning church revelation all right so what about women renaissance women what about marriage well we have our scene from romeo and juliet <coughs> marriage for women is again families choose the partners not a surprise. Women are going to have a say in this. We see this in Romeo and Juliet. When I used to do a Western civilization course, we would read Romeo and Juliet. Paris goes to Capulet and says, I would like to marry Juliet. And Capulet's like, I don't know. Maybe I'd like having her around. I know I should marry her. I know she's getting old. She's 13. Uh, not quite 13. I know she's getting old, but I like having her around. And Paris is like, I understand, but you know, women are getting married, and I am a stud. I am a leading man of the city. You'd be happy to have me as a son-in-law. And Capulet's like, yes, yes, you are an excellent man. There is no doubt about it. Juliet would be lucky to have you. Here, let's do this. I'm going to throw a party. Let Juliet check you out. You check out Juliet. You haven't hung out together. You check out Juliet. If you like her and she likes you, great. But I'm also going to invite all of the other nieces I've got, the cousins I've got. And so if you like somebody else, that's okay too. I'll make that work. And Paris is like, sure, no problem. Capulet then goes to his wife. And says, what do you think about Paris? Can you ask Juliet what she thinks about Paris? Because Paris is sniffing around. He's asking. And it's kind of time that Juliet thinks about marriage. And so the mom is like, oh my God, Paris is awesome. So she goes to the nurse and Juliet is like, I got something for you. Paris is interested. What do you think? And the nurse is like, oh, a man, such a man. Juliet, uh-huh. And then she makes a lot of like inappropriate remarks about sex that the women are like ha, 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 ha. and it's a big comedy scene because the audience would all be like ha, 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 ha. the virgin doesn't know what they're talking about ha, 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 ha. oh boy she's in trouble <sighs> and Juliet's like I don't know I've never really thought about it 
And they're like, well, do you think you might be interested in Paris? And she's like, well, I'll look to like if liking moves the heart. You know, I'll, I'll check it out. She has to approve. She still kind of has a veto. Like, you, and that's the big scene in Act Four or early Act Five where Capulet says, "I, you are marrying Paris. I am putting my foot down. How dare you say no? I have women crying because Tybalt is dead. Everyone's upset. I am tired of this. I am going to have a happy day. You are getting married." And she's like, "I can't get married." And he's like, "Why can't you get married?" He's like, "I don't want to. I'm." can't tell you that I'm actually married to Romeo and have had sex with him, so I can't marry anybody else because I'm not a virgin anymore, but it's okay because the priest married us. It's totally cool. But no one has told anybody anything and uh, this is going to be a tragedy. Everything's going to end up bad because I can't tell you the truth and neither can the adult priest who led us into this trouble. That is a weird thing. Even the mom's like, honey, come on. You can't make her get married. That's crazy talk. And he's like, if you don't get married, I am going to throw you into the street. You're going to be a prostitute. You're going to have no money from me. This, this life that you have is gone. You have no idea how crappy the world is out there. You are protected. You're like a bird in a gilded cage. You have no idea. But his outburst is so angry and so against the idea that she can't be made to marry somebody. She has a veto power. That the other women are like, whoa, dude. And Juliet turns to her mom and says, say something to him. And she's like, no. No. No, I'm through with you. We've given you the opportunity. You're just being stubborn. You're being a big old B word. Deal with it. So... So that's how stubborn Juliet is. She loses her mom's support on this. So families choose the partners. But in cities, money is more important than land. Go to Philadelphia. You could spend $10 million on an apartment, a thousand square feet in the air. Go to Wyoming. A million dollars can buy you a thousand or ten thousand acres or more. Money is more important. In rural countryside, the land is the land, which means you could get married at 14 and 15 years old because you knew one day you were going to inherit that land. You're going to inherit the money. So boys could get be 14, 15, 16. Girls could be, you know, 13, 14, 15 knowing that they were growing up in this kind of protected world where they were with their larger families and they would one day get income from ownership of that land. That's not true in cities. In cities, it's all about money. Money, 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 money. So what happens to marriage? Well, if you want to get married and the father and mother of the person you want to marry has to okay it, just like with an apartment, what are they going to look at? They're going to look at your bank account. You're going to say, how much money you got in the bank? How much, what's your income? And so what happens is a 14-year-old has no money. And so the Renaissance is why, gentlemen, you did not get invited to prom by an 18-year-old cheerleader when you were 14 and a freshman. Why you had to wait till you were a senior to go to prom. And maybe even then, it was tough to get a date. I have asked this question in my classes for 15 years. I've asked how many gentlemen, how many men have been a first-year high school student and have gone to senior prom with a senior girl, with an 18-year-old girl? And the answer has universally been zero. Every class, I also ask, Ladies, how many of you have gone to senior prom when you were first-year, 14-year-old high school student? And there's always a couple. Three, four, five. There's always a bunch.
This is why. The renaissance is why. Money is why. Men need money to impress the family and to impress the women. Like, think about it. Why, when you were 18, ladies, were you not dating a 14-year-old boy? Why, when you were a senior, were you not dating a freshman boy? Why did you not go, ah, those 14-year-olds? Why? Because what do they have to offer you? Nothing. I bet most of you, when you were 18, weren't even dating other 18-year-olds in high school. You were dating college men. You were dating 20-something-year-olds. I've had the occasional student who, who will kind of arch her eyebrow and go, well, I was dating 30-year-olds. And you go, okay, well, that's you. Good. Congratulations. You're awesome. But th- why? Because they have something more to offer. They have more money. They have a job. They have a car. They have freedom. They have space. They're sexier. They have better fashion sense, maybe. I don't know. I guess an 18-year-old boy compared to a 14-year-old boy has better fashion sense, but having been both and then being a 22-year-old boy, it's, uh, I don't know what women see in any of us. But be that as it may, marriage gets delayed because money takes time. I have more money than my students. I am more attractive to women than my students. Why? Because I'm a professor. I make a good job. I make a good living. I can summer in Switzerland or Hawaii. We can go down the Italian Riviera or hang out in Paris cafes. Or go to Buenos Aires. And be by the river. Be by the ocean. That takes time. I'm older than you. My credit is older than an 18-year-old first-year college student. Every day I get letters from credit card companies being like, I want to offer you tens of thousands of dollars in credit. When I was 18, I didn't get that. When I was 18, nobody wanted to give me money. They all said, you're 18. You don't get any money. So it takes time. This is why if you've ever gone to the club, there's the 40-year-old divorcee hanging out in the club, hoping to get with the 22-year-olds. It's a bit creepy. I'm with you. And everyone goes, why is the old guy here? But why? Because somebody's going to say he has more money. He has more life experience. He has more opportunity for me than you do. What job have you got? Well, I'm going to get a job one day. I'm taking a couple of college classes. I got some credits and and I'm going to I got plans. Well, he's a banker in Philly. He's buying Cristal right now. So I'm going to go hang out with him. Thank you very much. Thanks. Good luck to you. Money matters because money is the promise of a better life. So marriage gets delayed. So what happens? Men marry younger women. This is still true today. The average age of first marriage for a man in the United States is 30 years of age. For a woman, it's 27. 26, 27. It has gone up because of the pandemic, because of the 2010 crash. More people are trying to get a college education. They're delaying marriage. We also have the cultural idea that you can have sex and not be married. You can live together and not be married. Again, delaying marriage. But you're talking, my grandparents got married at 20 years of age. My grandfather was 20. My grandmother was 19, 18. Now, today, the average age is 30. In the Renaissance, men became about 25 years of age. About 25 years old. So basically, you had to finish college. That's what 25 is. 
25 is you finish college and you got a job for a couple years. So you got a little stability. That's what 25 years is today. And that would have been the age in the 60s and the 70s. New York and San Francisco, where it's more expensive to get married, more expensive to live, marriage age is even older. It's well into the 30s. Women were 14 to 16 years of age. By the age of 20, you were a spinster, and you're going to end up staying with your parents. You're going to take care of your parents when they get old, but you're basically by 20 not getting married, which is a big deal in like Pride and Prejudice where the friend marries the vicar. She's 27. Like Her marriage days are so far gone. Like Jane is 20 and worried that she's too old to get married. The friend is like 27, I think it is. No wonder she's so quick to get married. No wonder she's like so easy to push Mary out of the, out of the way. So you had about five years to get married. What's the effect of this? The result is that women outlive their husbands. If you live to be about 40 years of age in the ancient world, in the Renaissance and the early modern world, <coughs> all things being equal, if a man is 10 years older than her, his wife and they just live to a natural age, if childbirth does not kill this woman, she will outlive her husband. Which means, what happens to the money? Now, land can be descended to within the family and not be broken up. Money, on the other hand, can disappear. And who do I trust more to raise my children? Their mother or my cousin? Now, I love my cousin, but he has his own kids, his own family. And if I gave him a million dollars in my inheritance, if I died and left him my million dollars and said, take care of my kids, well, you've seen Cinderella, right? Who gets treated well? The real daughters of the mom or Cinderella, the stepdaughter? The husband left lots of money. Who gets it? Well, you can see it all goes to the mom's real daughters. And Cinderella becomes the maid. So if I want someone to take care of my children... I need to leave that money to their mom, to my wife. So women start to inherit money. Well, once they inherit money, now they have independence. Now they can do stuff with that money. And the first thing they buy is a classical education. They are going to educate their children, especially their girls. Why? Because the first generation or two of these women didn't get an education. And so now that they have money, they want their daughters to be better off than they are. You're always going to educate your sons because that makes them a better economic and marriageable person. Right? They will do better if they get a classical education. You're going to spend the money to send your son to maybe not university, but if you can, university, or a uh, public school. A pro well, it's called public school in, in Europe, but it's really a private school. But uh, uh, what's below? The equivalent of community college. It's tutors, it's, it's those kind of specialty learnings to get them trained for a job, right? Depending on what your level of hierarchy and, and income is. So, you know, middle class people, lower middle class people are going to invest in their children's education so that they can move up. But you're also investing in girls' education so that they can one day inherit that money and gain their independence. Because that first generation of women inherited all this money and had no idea what to do with it. Which means that um, um, thieves and raiders and people who promise stuff and hackers and, you know, hi, can you give some money to the orphans? Oh, here's $100. Thank you. That's my money now. Right? People took advantage of those women and they don't want to be taken advantage. They will also support the arts. And they will do patronage. Why? Because it elevates their family name. They elevates their, their reputation of their family. They don't have a man to do it. 
They don't have a man to win battles. They don't have a man to do great politics. So they have to do, they have to make their marriage prospects and their income prospects for their children greater. So what do you do? You, you do things that make your family name more famous. And the biggest way in the Renaissance, as we'll talk about, is to um, patronize art and then put your name on it. Hello, this Raphael is brought to you by X. We do this today, right? NPR or PBS does a, does a documentary, right? This Ken Burns documentary is brought to you by, and there's like 10 people's names attached to it. That's for fame. Women are going to gain an increased role in society. Remember, women are pushed aside. They don't have, St. Paul has them obeying, not being independent. Now they have money, so they're independent. So they're going to have an increased role in society. Power, prestige, they're going to have a say in big decisions, in marriage decisions. That's Lady Catherine in Pride and Prejudice. That's the aunt in um, Little Women. And so that increased role in society gives them independence. It also gives them power because people want that money. People want the experiences that money can buy. And it gives them prestige because if they do that money well, this is, this is how foundations work. You use that money well, people go, oh, Lady Catherine. Yes, Lady Catherine. Oh, thank you so much. So, all right. That brings us to Art in the Middle Ages. And I think I'm going to stop here because we're about an hour. We're around an hour in. And rather than try to squeeze this in to a 15 or 20 minutes and make it an even longer episode, I'm going to cut here and I'm going to make this a short video on just art. So that's where we'll go. So thank you very much. Take care. Be safe. Good luck.